Hello everyone, this is the Commercial Real Estate Investing from A to Z podcast and I'm your host, Steph Bodrini. This podcast is for everyone who wants to be part of our real estate family and learn commercial real estate investing from A to Z. I'll be sharing with you tips and tricks for real estate investing while being mentored by a few people with several years of experience. And my goal is to keep things very straightforward because we are all busy. With that, in the last episode, we learned if you should be investing in Silicon Valley, what does the future of office space could look like, and what happened to office spaces during the last downturn. In this episode, we're learning about self-storage. We are interviewing Ryan Gibson, a co-founder of Spartan Investment Group. He focuses on providing self-storage investing opportunities to individual investors. He has organized over $12 million of private equity for his company to fund self-storage and development projects, and he is responsible for investor relations and capital raises for projects. Today, we are learning why you should be investing in self-storage, what are some of the biggest lessons learned when fundraising, how you should select the location to invest, and the biggest challenges with self-storage. Here we go. Ryan, thank you so much for being here with us today. I know you are very busy, so I greatly appreciate it. Why don't we get started with making a case for investing in self-storage? Yeah, so self-storage is something that we looked at um, back in 2016. We kind of made a pivot from investing in residential real estate. We were building condos and new houses and flipping houses and developing land. We landed on self-storage for a couple of reasons. We liked the operational, um, how straightforward it was being operationally um, easier to manage than say the, um, you know, a a multifamily property. Uh, We looked at vacancy trends, rent growth, saturation, and um, all the things that, you know, people like about self-storage. Self-storage was one of the least foreclosed upon asset classes during the last recession. I agree with you. That's what I have been also learning from my research. And that's why we ended up getting connected (laughs) since I asked a friend of mine, who are the top people in self-storage? And and she introduced me to you. There is a retail component in self-storage. What would that be? Well, it's just becoming more retail oriented. You know, when you come in, it's, it's all about customer service. It's about providing a clean office environment that people are using it more. It's becoming a very customer focused uh, industry. And um, there's a lot of upselling. There's, you know, tenant insurance, notary services, PO boxes, FedEx UPS shipping that you can put at the facility. You can actually sell retail items in the store. You know, some facilities were, you know, considering putting in propane putting in notary services, things that add value to the customer and are complementary to the storage business. What are some of the biggest lessons that you have learned when fundraising since you are syndicating deals out? Engage your network. Find ways to add value to your investor network to keep people engaged. We've actually done a really good job, I think, of tracking where we meet our investors and how they and the ones that actually end up pulling the trigger to do an investment. And a lot of our investors are personal relationships, you know, people we used to work with or um, 
people that we knew, friends, neighbors, family, people in the sports teams, Scott, my business partners in the military, some folks that were in the military with him, people that can kind of know us from in different capacities and trust that we're uh, sort of the folks that you know we can get the job done. The other thing is referrals. We don't really focus on going out and finding investors. We just focus on taking care of the ones that we have. We do go out and try to find new investors, of course, but we really just to put a lot of emphasis on the investors that we have currently by sending them monthly updates. And that's really kind of inspired folks to reinvest and also refer friends to invest in our business as well. How do you guys go about deciding where to invest in self-storage? So we focus on 150 MSAs across the United States. And those MSAs have a key component of population growth. Population growth is the number one driver of self-storage utilization. Overall market saturation, job growth, demographics of kind of our ideal consumer with as far as income levels, job placement, migration trends. And we look for cities and areas or MSAs that, that are trending positive and have a good outlook for um, population. That's really kind of that. And we also look at rental rates. We have a hard time justifying uh, building in certain markets, uh, new, brand new storage. If the rental rates are, you know, say less than $6 a square foot, it would be difficult to do that. Are there specific things we should be aware of weather-wise or how the homes are built in those areas? I think what's more important is just kind of understanding, you know, the hyper-local market where what is the utilization rate based on the population. So is it seven square feet per person or is it six or is it five? And really understanding what the demand is in that specific market. And in particular on the cross streets of where you're looking to buy or build or expand a facility, it's really important to understand just what the market demands in that area and what the current saturation is to make a decision on if people are gonna be leasing up the units that you build, if you build extra units, or if you want to try to position the deal in another way, maybe you're building ground up or you're looking to expand the rents. The type of construction, I mean, obviously, if you're in a flood zone, that might you know, either A, make you pass on a deal because you don't wanna be in a flood, flood zone, um, or B, you know, perhaps you decide to build climate controlled units versus you know, roll up, you know, just traditional you know, storage that's roll-up doors, exterior roll-up doors, because you want to make sure that you can supply the market with what they want. If it's, you know, like in Texas, we're actually adding on about 40,000 square feet of climate-controlled storage because that is in a very high demand right now in that area. What are some of the biggest challenges with self-storage? I would say the number one challenge is finding the right project. We looked at 880 projects last year. Wow. Yeah, we put out six LOIs and we bought three. It's a very institutionalized asset class. A lot of projects that are over $5 million are getting all cash offers. Very difficult to compete with a lot of the institutional capital and larger players in the market because they have a lower cost of capital than we do because we're offering our investors, you know, a market rate return on equity. And um, they have a good, generally a good team of folks that can, you know, find the same data that we're finding. Although we're, I think we, we're pretty unique in that we can um, do all of that in-house. And we, we do subscribe to a lot of good data, make fast decisions on this particular area. You may find a, a great deal that has an existing storage business and plenty of land to expand the storage business on. But then you go to find out that the market is completely saturated with storage and you can't, you know, if you built that storage, the customers wouldn't come and you would have an empty building and a lot of, uh, you know, additional encumbrance on the, uh, on the property without the revenue. So it's, it's very important 
that you understand what the demand is in a certain market before you go and just decide, oh, well, the guy that owns a facility says he's been full and it's really, really popular, but little do you know that you didn't check the building permits in the area, three other people building around you and not going to work. So I would probably say that's the biggest challenge. So operationally, there has been challenges. Of course, there's always challenges day to day, but for the most part, we directly run all of our own facilities. We actually do all of our own in-house property management and asset management. And that part of it's fairly straightforward for us. And the construction is very straightforward for us because it's a slab on grade, single story buildings for the most part. We, we do have some multi-story projects. For the ground up development, how long does it take from beginning to end on average? At least three years. It also depends on the market. But uh, if you're you know, getting a challenging enti entitlement, we're actually nearing the completion of getting full entitlements on a 127,000 square foot facility just south of Seattle. And it takes about three years to go from what we say trees to keys. From the time you find the raw dirt to the time that you open your doors is about three years. If you're buying an existing facility, say in a, in a relaxed jurisdiction with matter of right, yeah, you can, you can get out there and you can get building permits in a couple of months or maybe less. And then you can you know, build, a, you know, depending on how large the expansion is, depending on how the, how the site work, what site work is needed, you could, you could go out there and you could have a, you know, a, an addition completed in um, a year or less. It also puts up a very large barrier to entry because it, you know, if it takes that long to, to start up a business, you also are putting yourself, um, you're separating yourself from the competition that may be building behind you. Would it be easy to actually buy, let's say, an industrial building and convert it to self-storage or it's something that you wouldn't even touch? That's something that's very popular right now. It's a, it's a very trending trend right now. A lot of people are doing that, you know, the dark box conversions, you know, converting an old Kmart or Sears or car dealership or something into a self-storage. That is something that the start to finish is a lot less. Obviously, if you have an existing building, you've already got, you know, the stormwater and underground utilities in place. You've already got the walls and the roof and the building already up. And you're basically coming in and retrofitting the corridors and looking at, you know, we're actually looking at, I think, five or six of those uh, conversion opportunities right now, just as of today. And uh, we're looking to kind of pursue that. I recently visited a self-storage facility here in the Bay Area and the guy not only had the buildings, he also started to buy some metal containers. If we were to buy any self-storage property, do we need permits to put those metal containers on the property and rent them out? It depends on the jurisdiction. It really does. I would, I would definitely check with the local municipality. We do that we have about a 350-point due diligence checklist before we make a decision on any particular deal. Some jurisdictions will allow you to put down uh, portable containers in, over easements or in areas where you typically couldn't put a permanent structure. Some areas have restrictions. You know, they don't want to see self-storage doors from the road or they just don't allow temporary buildings or something. It's rare to find that, but that land may not have the use approved for something like that. So I would just check. I mean, I would say, yes, it's definitely possible in areas people do that. And a lot of our portable storage companies that provide those storage containers will help you sometimes often find out if it's feasible in the land that you're purchasing or the, you know, the storage that you currently own. I would just say it just depends, but it's definitely possible in some areas. Moving on to property manager. <laughs> How do you select and hire the best property manager and what do they do all day long? Some folks will hire third-party property management companies like CubeSmart, Extra Space, West Coast Self Storage, um, Public Storage. They might hire a company like that to come in and do the, the property management for them 
but they're still going to have to hire somebody that works at the desk that, you know, the owner is responsible for covering that expense. Um, but the property manager is going to take a fee or property management company is going to take a fee, usually 6% of gross revenue to manage that facility. We do the property management, asset management in-house. So Spartan Investment Group has um, folks on our team that do that in-house, but we hire somebody to staff all of our facilities. We like to have the sweet spot is we like to have usually three people for each facility. So we like to buy a facility large enough to support three managers. So usually a full-time manager and two part-times or maybe one part-time and a maintenance person. The day-to-day of a manager at a facility that's running the operation, you know, the the person that you're going to talk to to book your unit, they're actually doing lock checks every day to make sure that, you know, somebody didn't hop the fence and grab a unit and overnight or something and, and put their stuff in and put a lock on. So they're looking at every unit every day. They're answering the phones. They're interacting with our customers. They're dialing customers that are delinquent in rent. They're sending letters for rent increases. They're executing leases. They are doing everything that makes the facility run and take care of things. So they interact with utility companies. We had a fire marshal come by a property. They would host that person to come in and inspect things as needed. We have them certified as notaries so they can do notarized documents. And then they just kind of help with the collection of rent and other items that may need them, you know, kind of duties as assigned at the facility. I only asked that because I recently got my very first (laughs) self-storage unit. It seemed like she had nothing to do all day, which is great, but it just felt like there could be more that the property manager could be doing or... You know, it depends on how they have it set up. We like to have our managers as free as possible. We like to give them as much automation, backing of a, of a, you know, a call center, backing of our back office at our headquarters in, uh, in Colorado. We have people that, you know, help, you know, draft. We do a lot of the rent increases from headquarters. So the front staff isn't sitting there and, and jamming envelopes all day. Having somebody who's available to the customer to put that touch on there. And we, we like to give our folks as much training as we can in sales, customer service, follow-up. What is your second favorite asset class after self-storage and why? We own an RV park in West Texas, and that has been my favorite deal ever. Very similar in characteristics to a mobile home park and that the tenants are there full-time and they live there. Right now, our lot rent's about $800 a month. You know, utilities are included in that. Not to have a whole lot of amenities, it's kind of the lowest entry for housing. We just pay the, we collect the lot rent and the folks bring in their own RVs. In mobile homes, they would be purchasing their own homes. It does well in, in good times. It does well in bad times. I mean, it's something that we're actually in the middle of putting a, a mobile home park, a brand new mobile home park development <laughs> under contract, uh, which is very, very unique because you can't, you can't really build mobile homes anymore. They're actually, a, it's a declining asset class. So you're, they're actually taking them away. And, you know, we have an opportunity to potentially have all city water on this too. So it's very... I think it's a very good um, good asset class and it's you know something that a lot of folks are getting into at this point. It does sound very interesting at $800 per month. <laughs> that is crazy, especially for Texas. Does that attract a lot of trouble tenants and how do you guys go about dealing with that? You know, our tenants have been great. You know, we have 116 units. We're going to have issues, but I I really love Texas and people there are just the hardest working people that that I know and they work really hard. A lot of them are in energy and oil. Is there anything else that you think our audience should know? I'd like to stress, you know, again, of self-storage, if you're looking into that asset class, I know that a lot of folks have maybe never heard of it or maybe they have or it's becoming more publicly known as something that you can invest in. Just be aware that there are there is a lot of competition in it and 
there are a lot of projects that I stress, just make sure you do your demand analysis or your feasibility study before you get too far down the road in the project. And how can our listeners get in touch with you? Sure. Our website is spartan-investors.com. It's S-P-A-R-T-A-N-investors.com. Or you can just email me at Ryan, R-Y-A-N, at spartan-investors.com. Thank you so much for your generosity. This is such a wealth of information and I got a ton out of it. So I really appreciate your time and I hope a few people get in touch with you to learn a bit more about what you guys are doing. Thank you so much for having me. Today we learned why you should be investing in self-storage, what are some of the biggest lessons learned when fundraising, how you should select the best location to invest, as well as what are some of the biggest challenges with self-storage. If you have any friends or family members who would be interested in learning more about commercial real estate investing, make sure to share this podcast with them and I will see you next time.